Amen. You may be seated. You cut your Bible today. And turn with me again to Luke's Gospel. Where the reading is there on page 8 in your bulletin. these days Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples and chosen them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with him and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And if you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be condemned. Sorry, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? 
Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. And grant us now your spirit, Lord, we pray with your word in Jesus' good name. Amen. If someone were to say to you, you Christians are so weird, would you take that as a compliment or as an embarrassment? I don't know. I've met both types. <laughs> I have known Christians who are oddly like Jesus, and it's beautiful. It evokes a response of awe, but also real hope. Wow, people can become like that following Jesus. That's amazing. They're weird, but they're good weird. And I've also met some people who really think they're like Jesus. And they're just plain weird. And they're really off-putting, actually. Now, if following Jesus does not bring any change in your life, then something is obviously wrong. Throughout the whole Bible, when God gathers people around them, he gathers them to fill their lives with himself, with his goodness, what the Bible calls his holiness. It produces a kind of radiance, what the Bible calls glory. But what difference does Jesus make? What does it look like, the change that Jesus makes? I've been saying this for years to my kids. You know, they worry a little bit, being a pastor's family, as you can imagine. And I always tell them, we're, we're not, we have no interest in being weird for weirdness' sake. I know Christians who are like this. They're like, people are doing that. We're not going to do that. We're going to be weird. Therefore, we must be like Jesus. That's just weird. I'm not really interested in, I don't glory in just being different from other people. But what I always say to them is, if being wise makes you weird, if health makes you stand out among the sick, then so be it. And it will make you stand out. You've heard me quote this old line before. It's very helpful to me. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Now, this text opens up on a mountain. So let me ask you, Bible scholars, when is the last time a 12 were gathered together in one body at a mountain? This is obviously resonating with Sinai, the story of Israel's founding, the prophets foretold that in the days of Messiah, God would regather the scattered tribes of Israel, or maybe that seems like that's what's happening here. And then down on the plain below, very much like those 12 tribes of old, these 12 receive instruction. The Hebrew word would be Torah for instruction. They're instructed in how to live in the world as Jesus' Apostles. Now, notice the change from disciples, followers, to apostles. They're sent into the world to show what difference Jesus makes. And Jesus shows in this text how life as his apprentices, so he's the master, we're apprenticing under him, how it will make us odd. And he shows us a few curious features of Jesus' people, apprentices of this master. First of all, you'll notice, beginning in verse 20, they have an odd view of stuff and status. Verses 20 through 26, they have an odd view of stuff and status. Now, it's very easy to misread it when he says, blessed are you poor, hungry, weeping, persecuted. People misread this. Jesus is not saying here that we should aim to be poor, aim to be hungry, aim to be sad, aim to be hated. That is not a goal. I mean, if you can get that from other places in the Bible, you surely can't get it from this. He's not saying that. And he's also not saying that the mere fact that someone is 
poor, hungry, sad, hated, automatically makes them closer to God, in some automatic way makes them closer to God than someone who's rich, full, happy, and loved. He's not saying there's anything automatic about this. Well, you know, you're experiencing poverty, therefore you're just automatically closer to God. That's also not what he's saying. What he's doing is twofold. On one hand, he is encouraging his disciples who are already facing a very hard fact. And that fact is that following Jesus brings, it will always bring cost. It will always bring cost. I mean, it might not be for us here today, I imagine for most of us, it's probably not as intense as Simon and Levi, who quite literally got up and walked away from their lives to follow Jesus. But if you never have to leave anything, lose anything, suffer anything to follow Jesus, you never have to leave anything, lose anything, or suffer anything in following Jesus. And the question is, are you really following Jesus? Because choosing Jesus requires not choosing some other things. This week, Sarah and I will be married 20 years. And if either one of us throughout those 20 years has said, well, you know, I chose Sarah in 2002, but that doesn't mean I can't kind of keep choosing some other, you know, that is not how it works. You follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to some other things. That is just a fact. The disciples have felt this. And it's, Jesus wants them to be unfazed by the cost that comes because they are with the Lord. Jesus has already been identified as the Lord, that name, kurios in the Greek, and it just resonates with the name of Israel's God throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Lord. Well, Jesus is the Lord. And he tells them here, blessed are you who are poor because yours already is the kingdom of God. You're with the king. You're with the Lord, and his kingdom is yours. It'll only get better. <laughs> no matter what you lose, it will only get better because you're with the king. So they're just not phased by the fact that there's cost. And this produces an odd characteristic of Jesus people. And that characteristic is that real Jesus people, stuff, possessions, and status just are not at all a priority for them. They're just not a priority. There is nothing wrong with having stuff. There is nothing wrong with having status. But these things are not a priority for Jesus people because their priority is following Jesus. That's the priority. That's what drives their life. Now, to be clear, you follow Jesus. One of the things that's going to produce is a work ethic, diligence, applying yourself at what God has given you to do. And that will very often bring a certain amount of prosperity. It might bring a certain amount of reputation. There's a principle in this world that God has created that if you sow certain seed, you will reap certain seed. So it might be that in following Jesus, the outcomes are actually quite good. It might be. But following him is the priority. And if following the king brings good outcomes, guess what I do? I keep following the king. And if following the king brings absolutely miserable outcomes, guess what I keep doing? I keep following the king. Because following the king is about following the king. It's not about outcomes. He is my reward. To have him is to have life. And my reward is great. Jesus tells his disciples, rejoice when they hate you, when they spurn you, cast you out. Leap for joy. Your reward is great. In heaven where God reigns, Crazily enough, Jesus' people can leap for joy even when, in following him, they end up being hated and excluded. And I know some of you are probably sitting there thinking, really? Really? I mean, are people really able to leap for joy when they're hated and abused? Yeah. Yeah, they are. That's Jesus' people. And on the other hand, encouraging the disciples, but on the other hand, Jesus is challenging those on the fence about following him with another hard fact, and that hard fact is that stuff and status makes it hard to follow Jesus. Again, nothing wrong with stuff and status, but it makes it hard to follow Jesus. It is just a 
and it is a reality in this world that the poor and the needy in this world tend to follow Jesus more easily than people with stuff and people with status. Why is that? It is because when you are rich and you are happy and you are popular, your loves and your energies and your resources are occupied. I've got wealth, I've got happiness, I've got reputation, and so my loves and my energies and my resources are often just occupied. You find with people that are rich, happy, and popular, they're too full to hunger for God. They're just too full to hunger for God. And they're too busy to seek first, above all things, God's kingdom. People have said to me, Ben, you seem kind of negative about Long Island culture. The wealth. You hear me say this sometimes in the pulpit. The, you can seem negative about the wealth and the comfort and the ease that we have in this suburban culture. I, I, look, I am as happy as the next person for what God has given to us here. But I will tell you, after 20 years in the ministry here, I'm not sure our stuff and status is increasing our spiritual vitality. I have met, not, not across the board, but I've met a lot of Christians on this island who are rich, happy, and popular, and they're too full to hunger for God, and they're too busy to seek first God's kingdom, though many do it. And it's beautiful to watch when the rich and the happy and the popular are able to seek first the kingdom, but it is hard. It gets in the way. It occupies us. Most of us can say from experience, your spiritual life, my spiritual life, it's as vibrant as our sense of need. I find my spiritual life is as on fire as I have a sense of need. The minute I get comfortable, my fervor starts to cool. Maybe you're an exception. I have not met an exception, but maybe you're the exception. And this is what is weird about Jesus' people. There's just always a certain detachment, almost a carelessness, about stuff and status. It's great. It's wonderful. But there's a certain detachment from it because it does not, as a Jesus follower, it does not have my heart at all. The core of what makes me blessed is that I belong to Jesus, that his kingdom is mine, and that's unshakable, so that's where I have peace. That's weird. So their conditions, their condition, life condition doesn't really matter, but they're weird with this state of their heart. But there's more. Jesus goes on in beginning in verse 27 to say, you know, that his people have an odd way of relating with people. So they have this odd view of stuff and status. They're kind of just detached from it because their priority is Jesus. But then they have this odd way of relating with people, verses 27 through 39. This is really weird. This is really weird. You know the problem with people? You guys know the problem with people. The problem with people is that when people come into your life, guess what they bring with them? They bring wrongs and needs. It never fails. They wrong you and they need stuff. They cause offenses. They drain resources. No, you know, I'm not, that's not a knock on anybody. We all do that. I, if, I, if I come into your life, guess what? Ben's wrongdoings and Ben's needs come with Ben. Poor you. And sometimes... People can even end up being your enemies. They can just flat out turn against you and hate you. And so Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who understand that this isn't always just personal enemies. You might have personal enemies, maybe some of you do, but you will find as a follower of Jesus, there are lots of enemies of God in this world. There are lots of people who are enemies of God's rule. They're enemies of God's people. They don't like you one bit because you actually are serious about following God. The Jews understand what Jesus is saying here when he talks about enemies. They're being they are still kind of in exile, even though they left Babylon hundreds of years ago. They're still really in exile under this pagan overlord called the Roman Empire. They understand what enemies is, is about. And Jesus talks about how his people relate with people. What's your natural response 
to wrongs and needs? Well, the natural response, we retaliate in the face of wrongs. We calculate in the face of needs. You know what it means to retaliate in the face of wrongs, and we calculate in the face of needs. Every time I meet a needy person, I'm kind of running this internal calculus of return on investment. Jesus' people, he says, respond, verse 35, they respond as sons of the Most High. That's how we respond to wrongs and needs. Our response to wrongs and needs is framed by our Father's response. And what is, the, what is the response of the Most High to the wrongs and needs of his human creatures? Jesus tells in, says in verse 35, God the Most High is not just patient, though that would be amazing enough. God, he says, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to people who oppose his rule. You see this cross hanging on the wall here? I mean, it all comes to that, doesn't it? This is God takes his own curse on his enemies. He's that kind to the people who oppose his rule, who spit in his face. And he's generous to need. He's not generous to the helpless who cannot give back. I mean, it takes, it kind of, you got to swallow a little bit when you're ministering to someone who can't give anything back because they're helpless. Jesus says, God goes one step further. He, He is generous to the ungrateful who will not give back. I mean, it's one thing if... I, I'm giving to someone who can't give back. I mean, I can get, get that to a point. That's, that's, that's just natural. It's normal. But when someone has taken what I have given and they are deliberately refusing to thank me, deliberately refusing to respond, whew, man, that can be provoking. And that's, God is kind to the ungrateful. He is unbelievably merciful and gracious. That's the most high. You know, as an aside, you know, Jesus says in verse 31, treat people the way you'd like to be treated. This is how I'd like people to treat me. I can't tell you how it ministers to me when someone in my life treats me kindly, treats me as having worth, even when I'm at my very, very worst, and I have wronged them profoundly. It touches my heart so much when they're generous, when I'm ungrateful and even evil. And it means so much to me when I have need and people care for my need and there's no strings attached. You don't get the sense that there's an invoice coming. And they don't humiliate me. With this kind of like, you know, sidelong glance of, you see how much you're getting for free? I mean, we're going to give it to you for free, but, you know, don't ever forget the, 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 when people just give and it's just generous and they seem to love doing it, Jesus says, love people that way because you love being loved that way. And the sons of the Most High, he says, are like their father. Like their father, when they are ill-treated, this just never derails their seeking that others be well. You can treat them so badly, but they're just not derailed from seeking that others be well. You just cannot make these people vicious by mistreating them. Now, to be very clear, it's, he's not talking here about cooperating with evil. I mean, if, if you've got a situation, say, for, where a wife is being physically abused by her husband, Jesus is not telling her, just stay there and let him beat you. There is obviously a point where you are enabling evil by remaining in an abusive situation. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. There's a time to pursue justice because that's what would please the Lord. And obviously, if someone else is being mistreated, Jesus' people will cheerfully step in and stand in the gap to prevent injustice to other people. They will advocate on behalf of other people. He's not saying we're just these limp-wristed, mousy people sitting around being walked on and letting other other people get walked on. What he's talking about here is that Jesus' people, in their heart of hearts, they are just never retaliatory. 
they are willing to suffer an enormous amount of good, of, of evil in seeking the good of another person. They are willing to suffer just an amazing amount of mistreatment because they are seeking the good of this person, even a wrongdoer. They are seeking the good. Even if it brings tremendous suffering, slaps in the face, someone taking not just their cloak but their tunic. And in the face of need, so there's the wrongs that come. And they're just not retaliatory. They're at peace. They, they, want, to, they want others to be well. And in the face of need, you know, we're not God. We all have limited resources. We have to steward those. But with whatever resources God has given us, these people are aggressively generous. It's not like, you know, every once in a while I should give some money to, to, needy, to the needy. No, it's like they're aggressively seeking ways to give, and they have no interest whatsoever in kickback. They don't want repayment. They're not interested in what comes back. Their, their first thought when they throw a dinner party is not, how many of these people are going to invite me for a dinner party? They love doing good because their father loves doing good. That's what burns in their heart. You know, I, I was thinking about this as I read this this week. I would love to live in a world, I'd love to live in a community where everyone else was like this. I would so much. I would join that community if everyone else was like this. But to be like this, how do people get to be like this? Well, there's a long conversation we could have another time about life habits apprenticeship practices, but you'll notice Jesus has gone to say at the root of why these people love other people like this is because they know that there is, in fact, a most high. He was on to say in verses 37 through 39, 37 and 38, this is what it means to know there is a most high and I am not it. There is a God in heaven who has the authority to judge. He has the authority to condemn. He has the authority to forgive. He is the owner and the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so I do not pretend, Jesus says, judge not. I don't pretend to execute God's judgments because I am under God's judgment. I don't condemn other people lest God bring my sins into remembrance. I watch God forgive and so I forgive and I expect to be forgiven because that's how God is. And that's how I want to be as his child. And when it comes to encountering need, by the way, forgiving people is not apathy toward injustice. People have this idea, you Christians are always talking about forgiveness. You're just so apathetic towards injustice. Forgiveness is not apathy toward injustice. Forgiveness is knowing who the actual judge is. That's forgiveness. I will let God deal with your justice. My place is to love you in his name. That's forgiveness. Very different things, not apathy. And then, you know, you'll notice they, they know they can give and it will be given to you. They know that God is absurdly generous. And I belong to him. And so I give good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. I give that way because I expect to receive exactly that from God. He has promised in his abundant generosity, he will give back to me more than I could even desire. So I'm ready to give. That is what it means to be a Jesus person. An odd view of stuff and status, an odd way of relating with people. And lastly, Jesus says they have an odd zeal for personal obedience. An odd zeal for personal obedience. Verses 39 through 49 and if you kind of skim through this, he gives us a little parable about the blind leaving the blind, the speck in your brother's eye, the log in your own, the good and bad tree, building on the rock, building on sand. Here's the nutshell of this. You know, I thought about what Jesus is saying here. I, I am full of ideas about what's wrong with the world. I'm full of ideas about how people should change. And I might even be right about some of that. And I'm betting you're the same. You have ideas about what's wrong with the world, how people need to change. You might not even be wrong. But Jesus says here, 
Ben Miller, you are worse than useless to guide other people if you yourself are blind. That's what he's saying. I am worse than useless to guide anyone on the right road if I myself do not see. So I am not interested in being greater than my master, being this godlike figure setting the world straight where God has decided not to yet. I'm interested in being like my master, and that means I am sitting at his feet, and I'm letting Jesus clear my vision. I'm letting Jesus get into my eye and take out some logs before I start telling other people how to get rid of the speck in their eye. I am at the feet of Jesus, letting him work on my heart so I become a good tree that can bring forth goodness instead of being a bad tree that's bringing forth bad fruit. I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus, letting him teach me how to build my life on the rock before I go around trying to tell the people how to set up a construction project. I must be obedient. Because if I'm not doing those things, if I'm not with Jesus learning his word, the only thing I can contribute to other people is to help land them in ruin. Land in a ditch. End up with stuff collapsing around you because you built on sand. My influence is as good as my integrity. That's what Jesus is saying. My influence is as good as my integrity. And integrity comes in hearing and obeying Jesus. Now, pretty obviously, he's aiming this at some people in the crowd who are not inclined to follow Jesus, but very inclined for other people to follow them, the so-called Pharisees. But the disciples, the real disciples of Jesus, they're not focused on whether the Pharisees over there are responding to Jesus. Real disciples, their first question is, am I responding to Jesus? Am I following Jesus? Apprenticeship, beloved, means mastership. Discipleship means lordship. And as un-American as it may be, I have a lord. And doing his word is my focus if I'm going to be any good at all to anybody else. They have an odd zeal for personal obedience, along with their odd view of stuff and status and their odd way of relating with people. Let's close with this. You know, I think we'd likely all agree that this is weird. I think we'd also likely agree it's good weird. But the question that I imagine you ask, because I ask it too, as a pastor and just as a Christian, is isn't this all a little bit too idealistic? I mean, really. You know, we'll read this, listen to this, go home. You know, isn't this, this can seem very unattainable. To have that much freedom and contentment towards stuff and status, that much love toward your neighbor, that much zeal and obedience, really, is, is it not just idealistic? Is Jesus not just painting kind of pie in the sky here? Well, I'd say yes and no. Yes, it is true. There is no way to become this sort of person by your own efforts. If you walk out of here and you're like, you know, I'm going to go work harder on being that kind of Jesus person, your, your willpower is not going to take you very far down this road. Becoming this kind of person happens only as you are in constant fellowship with Jesus in his word. Drinking in who he is for us. Our righteousness. Our redeemer. The one who paid our debt. Our curse bearer. Drinking in who he is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Drinking in who God is to us as our father. Drinking in who we are as God's children. Drinking in what God is doing in the world, the story of his kingdom. Drinking in the place that he has given us in that story. If you're not walking in that fellowship with Jesus in his word, you can't become this. 
we can walk in the freedom, because that's what this is. These are free people. We can walk in the freedom of contentment, the freedom of love, the freedom of obedience, only because Jesus has made us free by his grace alone. And you drink that in in his word. That's the only way. So yes, in that sense, it's an ideal we can never attain on our own. But no, it's not idealistic. It's not too much to expect Jesus to bring all of this forth in the lives of his apprentices. It is one of the blights of the modern church that we expect so little Christ-likeness. And so we experience so little Christ-likeness. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church full of Jesus people. And I believe that I am and that I will be part of that unity, part of that holiness, part of that generous Catholicity, part of that energetic mission, because I believe in the God who builds that church and has made me a part of it. And so what crazy times we have to look forward to together. Amen? Make us these kind of people, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, through the work of your gospel. In Jesus alone we pray. Amen.